Ah, welcome. I'm so glad to see you. Please, come and take a seat here at the Backstabbers Dinner Club. I'll be your maitre d' for this evening, Terry McLaren Fraser, as we go through some of history's greatest traitors, turncoats, and collaborators. William Joyce, a.k.a. Lord Haw-Haw. In all of my research for this podcast, I think it's safe to say this is one of the people, alongside Benedict Arnold, the Cambridge Five, and Matahari, who were my inspirations to do something on this topic. William Joyce, better known to the history books as Lord Haw-Haw, was the last man in the UK to be executed for the crime of treason. I wanted to know what drove people to go and work for an organisation such as the Nazis. In Joyce's case, he appears to have been a dyed-in-wool fascist, a true believer in the policies of Adolf Hitler. William Brooke Joyce was born on April 24th, 1906, in Brooklyn, New York. His father was an Irish-born American named Michael Joyce, and his mother was Gertrude Brooke, born in England to an Anglo-Irish family. It was said that Gertrude disliked America, and when William was still young, the Joyces migrated to Ireland, where William lived in Salt Hill, Galway, and attended a local Jesuit school. It's important to note before we get too far into this, however, there's one constant fact to bear in mind. William Joyce is a notoriously unreliable narrator of his own story. He concocts all sorts of tall tales and self-aggrandizing stories. One such example was when he claimed he could speak German from a young age. Another was that he was born in Galway, as opposed to America. There's no evidence to confirm any of these, and help establish that Joyce will be willing to say anything to anyone to look good at any time. Joyce was a firebrand even in his early days by other people's accounts. The young boy went to a Jesuit school swiftly abandoning his Catholicism when a teacher told him his mother, a Protestant, would go to hell for worshipping the wrong faith. Joyce idolised his mother. His quickfire retort was if she went to hell, he was going there with her and he stormed out. His teacher once claimed that Joyce was the kind of person who'd either go on to do great and memorable things or end up hanging on a rope. And this, of course, is the point of the podcast, where I make a joke that at this point in the story, we refer to this as foreshadowing in the business. As a young man, Joyce found himself fascinated by such strange and disparate subjects as the Ember and Napoleon and the art of stage hypnotism. He also did learn at some point how to speak German, only claiming that his neighbours in New York had taught him some. Living in Ireland in the late 1910s, the Joyces were caught up in the final stages of the Irish rebellion against British rule. The Joyces themselves were loyalists to the UK, who felt somewhat betrayed when the British withdrew from the main Republic of Ireland, creating the Irish Free State at the end of the Civil War. Young William Joyce had claimed to be an intelligence gatherer for the Royal Irish Constabulary and the Black and Tan Auxiliary Force. He would often talk of hanging around the offices and that the Black and Tans had adopted him as their mascot. His family even went so far as to leasing a building to the Royal Irish Constabulary, which was later attacked and burnt to the ground. When speaking of this later, Joyce would say he saw his friends in the police murdered, as well as people that he saw were the enemy within the organisation of Sinn Féin. From there, William would go on to join the army, signing up to serve in the Royal Worcester Regiment, but being discharged within months, having lied about his age. He'd then go to attend Birkbeck College, where he ended up getting a first-class degree in English. He also experienced his first taste of political activism, joining the Conservative Party, but he ended up being kicked out 
after having an affair with another young party member. At this time, Joyce found himself somewhat enamoured with the developing fascist organisations within the United Kingdom. He found himself interested in an organisation known as the British Fascisti, but wound up joining the far better known British Union of Fascists, headed by Oswald Mosley. Mosley is definitely a man who will end up with his own episode here, but to give a brief context, Sir Oswald Mosley had been born into a wealthy family, attending private schools, and from there to Sandhurst Military Academy. He trained as a pilot during World War I, but in 1915 he crashed his plane and was relegated to desk duties. At the war's end, he stood for election for the Conservative Party, becoming an MP at the age of 22. He left the Conservatives to sit as an independent, following criticism of his support for Irish independence before joining the Labour Party in 1924 and losing his seat in a snap election to Neville Chamberlain, the future Tory Prime Minister. Out of office, Mosley paid strikers' wages, decried living conditions and advocated a state-run economy. He then outlined plans for a series of public works that could help stimulate the economy during the Depression, but resigned as nobody ever took him up on them. Mosley instead decided to turn to a relatively new political ideology, fascism. After the national government of the Labour, Conservative and Liberal parties dominated the elections of 1931, Mosley was travelling and he was enthralled with how fascism was progressing in Italy. In 1932, he formed his own British Union of Fascists, taking additional inspiration from the up-and-coming National Socialist Party of Adolf Hitler in Germany. William Joyce found kindred spirits within the fascist movement, whereby any inadequacies and shortcomings can easily be explained away by the system being rigged by nefarious and corrupt masters. Quick, brutal solutions are offered to problems the nation faces, with us-and-them mentalities separating true citizens, and you can't see the air quotes I'm doing on that, from those citizens who would destroy the nation. For Joyce, for example, it would mean it wasn't his fault he failed the Foreign Office Civil Service exam, it was some form of plot by the system. Joyce slowly began to rise through the ranks of the British Union of Fascists, with his personality, his intelligence, and his gift for public speaking gaining him a small following. He was seen as a rising star within the UK fascist scene. His time to shine came to a rally at Liverpool, where Mosley had a bout of thrombophlebitis, an inflammation of veins and clotting in the legs that could be quite sore and painful. Joyce took to the stage to speak on Mosley's behalf. He had a piercing look, a fiery rhetoric, an intense speech style. He became described as corrosive, but also electric. He was nicknamed the Professor for his academic accomplishments and the Mighty Atom for his muscular presence and energetic potential. He reached the peak of his powers in the BUF when he was made Director of Propaganda. He had arrived within the fascist world. This naturally, of course, contributed to his own sense of importance. Joyce was already known by those around him to be arrogant and narcissistic, self-assured in his own mind that one day society and the world at large would recognise his greatness. This had started from a very early age, with some accounts crediting William's mother telling him, without you at the centre, there is no empire. When your mother tells you that, to put it mildly, that'll skew anyone's sense of reality. It was at this point he began to rise within the hierarchy of British fascism and caught the eyes of the British Intelligence Service, MI5. MI5 monitors domestic threats in this country, and they'd opened a file on Joyce due to his standing within the fascist movement. It listed his strengths as his boundless physical strength, his mental courage, his intelligence and his loyalty. 
that cited his patriotism and his rather biting sense of humour. His weaknesses, on the other hand, were listed as a short temper, instability, labelled in the rather racist language of the time as his Celtic temperament, his conspiratorial complex, and the fact that he tended towards the theatrical, again building on so-called Celtic stereotypes about stubbornness they rounded off the assessment. But none of it stopped Joyce, and none of it stopped his rise within the British Union. Joyce was now in control of propaganda, and it was under his stewardship the pamphlets of the BUF took on a more blatantly anti-Semitic tone. It railed against those that Joyce himself considered subhuman and deserving elimination, but also somehow managing to control the government and financial sectors. This belief in the hatred of Jewish people was absolute from Joyce. He would often tell people a Jewish communist attacked him in a street brawl, giving him a scar across his face he called Die Schrammer, or German for the scratch, and his Lambeth Honour, some form of perceived street cred it would give him for being involved in the street battles between communist and fascist supporters. It even emulated the dueling scars on the faces of German nobles that he often admired. It would be in the mid-30s that the now legendary Battle of Cable Street would occur between the British Union of Fascists and local left-wing activists and anti-fascists. Streets were barricaded, missiles were thrown, and police fought the protesters of the march, trying to prevent the fascist marchers antagonising people in what had seen already as a deliberately provocative march. But Joyce was as prone to hyperbole about himself as his situation, as it was reported the scar may have actually come from a fight with a man whose wife he was sleeping with, or even an Irish woman he'd been involved with. But legend took hold in the far right, and many people saw Joyce as the next big thing. Joyce found his personal life developing in a positive direction this time too. In 1935, he met Margaret White, a typist in a textile factory from Carlisle. Margaret would go on to say she had felt mesmerised by William's speaking style and his delivery, but that in person she struck him as somewhat cold and aloof. But something in William must have stuck, because a year later, Margaret would receive a letter inviting her to an event at the Royal Albert Hall in London. She fell ill on the trip, but was determined to hear him speak. She made the event and adored the spectacle and William's speech. He then accompanied her to an event in Mayfair. Over glasses of champagne, William asked Margaret if she was aware of his personal life and the issues dating him, given that he was a divorcee. Margaret said she was aware of this, and it wasn't an issue for her. Joyce then said he wanted to see her again, and even went so far as to propose marriage when the two were eventually married in Kensington in February of 1937. They moved into William's flat, which he shared with John Angus McNabb, a fellow member of the British Union. There was no honeymoon, though, as William Joyce would continue electioneering for the seat of Shoreditch in London County Council's elections, for which he was ultimately unsuccessful, but still got half the votes his Labour counterpart did. Instead of the tradition where one thanks the returning officer for carrying out their role, and the fellow candidates for a spirited campaign before you concede, Joyce would instead decry that the entire electoral campaign in Shoreditch had been dirty and stormed off the stage. If it had been the 21st century, he would have thrown in fake news for good measure. Margaret would criticise her husband later in private for his outburst. He would assert there was no point pretending and being a good sport when everyone in the campaign had been horrible to him. His philosophy was that if his adversaries were wrong, 
it was dishonest to act as though they were correct and the fight should continue. In late 1937, however, William's ascendancy was rudely stopped, as Oswald Mosley announced a series of dismissals from the BUF leadership, and William was on the list of those to go. The reason given was that they needed to restructure and innovate. It was necessary to try and freshen things up. But even at the time, there were groups of people within the fascist movement who felt Mosley was trying to sideline any rivals for his leadership and reassert his control over his own organisation. It was clear William Joyce was one of those rising stars. He could have rivaled his boss for control. Joyce felt utterly betrayed, and he pursued a lawsuit against the British Union of Fascists for unfair dismissal, which he did not win. Joyce would also found his own political party, called the National Socialist League, into which he threw every one of his efforts. Mosley took that very badly. In public, he would claim the National Socialist League were dangerous extremists. In private, he raged at his deputy, calling him a traitor. The National Socialist League held a few rallies. Attendees noticed the vitriol with which Joyce spoke. Some compared him to the revolutionary in France, Jean-Paul Marat, whose Ami de Peuple paper had spurred on some of the bloodiest atrocities of the pre-terror French Revolution. But the National Socialist League was never a coherent force in far-right politics. Their initial financial backer died shortly after the party was formed, and Joyce began shifting his own ideology from British fascism to something more of an outright copy of the German Nazi party. Joyce loved Britain and the Empire, but he felt somehow the British were no longer striving for greatness in the same way as Germany was. Joyce grew a moustache in emulation of Adolf Hitler and began to gravitate towards groups in England sympathetic to the Nazi regime and became a fascist zealot in all aspects of his life. For example, Joyce took up a tutoring job to make ends meet, but under his new beliefs, he would never accept Jewish students, and he took any opportunity to proselytise on Nazism and the superiority of the German Reich. But, despite initial desires in Britain to avoid another conflict in Europe and following the policy of appeasement of Nazi Germany, it became clear by 1939 there would be some form of confrontation, there would be a war. As an avowed fascist and German supporter, Joyce and his wife felt there would be targets on their back. They had discussed moving to Ireland, which would later declare itself a neutral power in the Second World War, but Joyce really wanted to go to Germany and to Berlin. He would help his Nazi peers fight the communist Soviet Union and live in an openly anti-Jewish society. The couple packed their bags and travelled on to Berlin, and in a stroke of luck, their departure was just as the UK began issuing arrest warrants for homegrown fascists, locking up Oswald Mosley and Joyce's roommate John McNabb in prison to prevent any homegrown fascist launching an anti-British action. As the advent of war drew closer, the fascist movements advocated for peace and accommodation with the Germans at all costs. As fears of fascist fifth-column saboteurs increased in public and parliament, the government moved to intern Mosley and the other ringleaders. In his biography of Maxwell Knight, the former spymaster of MI5, Henry Hemming posits that Joyce and Knight were friendly from his days in the British Union of Fascists, and that Knight may have tipped Joyce off to the impending raids, but there's not a massive amount of evidence to support that. Arriving in Berlin, the Joyces were fated as heroes by their new German friends. They fell in love with their homeland and its government. They watched with a measure of glee as the German army swept through Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, France, Greece, and the Balkans. 
the British couple were certain their homeland would fall to the Nazi juggernaut next, and began preparing to return to their newly fascist motherland. Joyce began wearing a German Arbeitsmutzer hat, and a pin with the Cross of St Andrew, the Cross of St George, and the Nazi flag upon it. It was also at this time he joined the Rundfunkhaus, the German state radio broadcaster controlled by the Ministry of Propaganda under Josef Goebbels. The division Joyce worked for was the Bureau Concordia, a part of the propaganda ministry that would broadcast foreign language radio stations into enemy nations under what we would probably call these days black propaganda, the sowing of fear, discord and disinformation amongst the populace of opposing nations, including Joyce's home country, the UK. It was while working in this role that Joyce would gain the stage name that would immortalise him into infamy, Lord Hawhaw. The name Lord Hawhaw was not exclusive to Joyce. It was used by another propagandist first, a German by the name of Wolf Mittler. Mittler, a former German radio announcer, whose perfect English accent gained him the nickname Lord Hawhaw, had left the broadcasts after a few months, and he was replaced by Norman Bailey Stewart briefly, and then on to William Joyce. Joyce would be broadcast to England almost nightly, his slightly nasal voice beginning with the refrain, This is Germany calling, Germany calling. His show, beamed nightly to Britain, was often listened to by those in the UK, some out of curiosity, some out of entertainment at some of the ridiculous propaganda and ridicule of German attitudes to the British, but another section felt it was a way of hearing news without the government's media control at the time. The platform would give Joyce the closest association to Lord Hawhaw as a persona, and it also made him the most prominent English-speaking fascist following the arrest of Mosley and the others. Many of these had continued for peace and accommodation with Hitler, a policy that had well and truly fallen out of favour at the start of the war. A version of Joyce would also be immortalised in film by Universal Studios, who made a contemporary Sherlock Holmes film with a character not unlike Joyce dubbed The Voice of Terror. It would also be around this time in 1940 that Joyce published a book, Dummerung über England, or Twilight Over England. This book, copies of which can be found online, is mostly a self-defending anti-Jewish pro-Nazi book. Within its pages, Joyce weaves a narrative through a fascist lens of history, with a dash of 1930s populism sprinkled in. With the onset of World War II and the increase of bombing known as the Blitz in London, Joyce broadcast how to dress wounds from bombing raids in the form of early black propaganda, and while Joyce was seen as something of a joke, there's evidence to show there were people who listened to him. He seemed to resonate with a certain section of society. He had 6 million regular listeners, 18 million at his peak. Goebbels went on to describe Joyce as the best runner he'd had in his stable. Throughout all of his broadcasts, there's a running theme of Germany as a form of victim. It's been argued in some texts that this may be a form of projection upon Joyce himself, because despite the attacks of Germany on Britain, Joyce's home was littered with reminders of his British homeland and souvenirs from the country. Whether it was due entirely to his personality or his politics, uh, Joyce was often shunned within social circles, including by many of the Germans he now worked with. This could be indicative of that famous traitor's paradox. It's, if you've already betrayed one side, what's to stop you betraying us? This was summed up best by Hermann Hafferkorn, a professor of English who was head of the English department, who had said that while men like William Joyce were useful, he didn't necessarily want to be friends with them. Even Dietz, 
one of the Reich's radio grandees had called him a traitor, a term Joyce himself actively despised. Dietz would make fun of this by giving Joyce a photo of Lord Hawhaw inscribed from Mephistopheles to Faust, referencing the story of the man who made the deal with the devil. Faustian pacts aside, the Joyces reveled in food, clothing and other spoils from the Nazi-occupied lands. But Margaret would say he despised being called a traitor, and sometimes he would take it out on her, Joyce channelling his frustrations into domestic violence. Joyce's broadcasts began to take on a more vicious tone, revelling in the air raids that hit London, including the boast that zoos would be raided to procure meat for the population, and retribution had befallen Britain for its bombs on Germany. But this German retribution hit civilian and military alike. The bombs would hit the home of Angus McNabb, his friend and fellow travelling fascist, and his own parents. Michael Joyce, William's father, was killed in 1941 when a bomb landed near the house and caused him to have a fatal heart attack. Sadly, Joyce's mother Queenie could not cover the funds to give her husband a burial. Joyce would not find out about his father's death until later, but he never mentioned it on air only the bombing of a homeland he wanted to do the best for. In their personal lives, the majority of the Joyce's social time was taken up drinking. They had no particular favourite, it was whatever they could get their hands on. But the relationship between Margaret and William was beginning to deteriorate even further. With William's abusive behaviour and the horrors of war coming to their doorstep in Germany with the Allied air raids, the two drifted apart. The Joyce's were exiles from their home country in a foreign land. Their desire for work began to falter, with Margaret talking of how dreary her work and her life was, one day noting the only thing of excitement that happened was when the heating blew up. William, on the other hand, found more solace in drink. His colleagues at the Rundfunk house would complain to their superiors that Joyce would come in stinking of drink, bitter at the Germans he encountered, and how they didn't compare to the Aryan master race he had envisioned the Nazis would be. He would become belligerent and refuse to carry out work he considered beneath him. At home, these frustrations were vented fully on Margaret. He would tell her cruelly he didn't care whether she was there or not. He would scream at her when his breakfast was not satisfactory, and one time he nearly beat her unconscious for forgetting to buy him cigars. In 1942, Joyce had to contend with a new fascist defector on the block, John Amory, the son of Leo Amory, Conservative MP. John had defected to Germany and openly sympathised with Hitler and the Nazis, in direct contradiction to his father, who joined Winston Churchill in opposing Germany's appeasement and served in Churchill's war cabinet. As well as pitching an idea to the Germans of an SS Legion of St George, comprised of British prisoners of war that he would convince, somehow, to fight for Germany, the Bureau Concordia saw that young Amory could hold some potential to reach the British audience. This riled Joyce on an ideological and personal level. Ideologically, he felt Amory was a bourgeois wannabe, and he was only there and listened to because of his high standing in English society. Personally, Joyce felt somewhat threatened in his position by a younger person performing the same act as him. Joyce would tell his superiors at the Bureau Concordia Amory was not a true Aryan, that his mother was Jewish-Hungarian, and they'd converted on arrival to the UK. He would also tell anyone who listened that Amory was only interested due to his anti-communist sentiments. He wanted to have the Soviet Union defeated, but he wasn't going to defeat the UK like Joyce wanted. Amory, on the other hand, felt the foreign broadcast service was split between William Joyce and Norman Bailey Stewart. Joyce, with his polemical style of speech, would be counter-reductive to the results of the Third Reich. As it happened, Joyce didn't need to worry for too long. Amory would overestimate his own importance, 
He demanded the radio service follow him or Joyce, the Germans later on rewarding Joyce with head commentator in the English department. In his eyes, he'd made it. He was paid double the minimum wage in the UK at the time. He had overtime. He had paid leave. Announcements under his own name as a contracted star. But at this time, German fortunes were turning for the worst. In North Africa, Erwin Rommel's German forces were stopped at the Battle of El Alamein. While in the war between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, the Red Army held on and encircled the German sixth at Stalingrad. Joyce's broadcast switched from the unstoppable German attack to the impenetrable German defence. Joyce's messages moved to downplaying the threat of an Allied Second Front and the fact that Germany would not capitulate on easy terms. His home life began to be as turbulent as professional life. He had a myriad of lovers at this point, but nothing far-reaching. Though far from the most likeable person, there's every suggestion that Joyce saw himself as a man of conviction and that he only ever sought relationships out of need rather than any some form of caddish, lady-killing type. Things at work grew even worse, with the much-denied Second Allied Front opening up in Italy in 1943. Having denied this on the radio, Joyce then parroted the Nazi line it wasn't a real Second Front, and it amounted more to just a tiny skirmish on Sicily. When it became evident the Allies made gains, Joyce would say the gains were far less than the British and Americans had hoped, and that even if they did take Sicily, it wasn't a big loss. The Germans would crush the Allies and retake the island in good order. Some of Joyce's co-workers, and even his listeners at this point, say you could swear that you would hear his slurring on air, a sign of his increasing alcohol abuse. His talking points became more outlandish. He would rely on the increasingly desperate outlook of the German propaganda ministry. Joyce would say the Allies were going wrong by going for Winston Churchill's proclamation of Italy being the soft underbelly of Europe. He made a great deal of the Italians as fascist allies, and that the two were united in their desire to drive the Allies into the Mediterranean Sea. Two weeks after this, Mussolini was deposed by his own Grand Council of Fascism, who then ceded power to a new government convened by King Vittorio Emmanuel III, ending fascism's two decades of control in Italy. As Germany invaded their former ally to stop the Allied advance, Joyce would sneer into his microphone that Adolf Hitler would strike the final blow to kill off the enemies of the Reich. But as 1943 gave way to 1944, it was clear to everyone that at some point a landing in France would occur, most logically in Calais, but realistically anywhere on the north coast of France. Joyce's programme began to adopt the tone of predicting dire Allied future. He would appeal to the families listening in Britain to tell their loved ones death on the shores of France was inevitable, and it wouldn't even be for a noble cause. The only reason these men would die in faraway lands would be for Poland in Central Europe and the imperious Soviet Union, whose communism would spread across the continent. The prior retreats of the German army were regrouping. They were fortifying the Atlantic Wall. Despite his nature, some of this did ring true to some. Despite our interpretations of the amazing bravery and achievement of Allied forces landing in Normandy, it was seen as possibly being a complete failure. Even General Eisenhower had written a speech that would outline the failure of the Normandy landings. Thankfully for history, it's a speech he never had to make. Joyce fell back on Germany's Vergeltungswaffen, or vengeance weapons, lauding the V-1 flying bomb as a special weapon to determine the outcome of the war. The Germans, Joyce would claim, had tried to show humanity and restraint in not using these weapons sooner, but in fear of the Allies moving on German territory, the Germans had resorted to this tactic as a last resort. A similar claim would come with the V-2 rocket, 
a ballistic missile that could lay claim to being the ancestor of the hypersonic. For eight weeks, the Germans used these rockets against Britain, but there was little for Joyce to report. The government ordered a media blackout in Britain on the impacts, so as Germans couldn't calibrate their aim. After eight weeks, the Allied advance had put Britain out of the range of those as well, leaving Joyce and his German masters looking for any hope to grab onto. One such opportunity came in the failed July 20th, 1944 bomb plot and the subsequent coup attempt by a clique of army officers under the Operation Valkyrie plan. This, Joyce triumphantly claimed, was the reason the Germans were faltering. It wasn't that the Allies were better, it was that the Nazis had to fight the enemy within, and now that was out the way, the fortunes of Germany were turning around. But it was only the beginning of the end. As 1944 turned to 1945, the situation for Germany turned even more precarious. Joyce and the Rundfunkhaus continued, but there was disruption caused by day and night raids from Allied forces in the West. Joyce's broadcast attempted to split the Allies. There were lurid tales of Churchill selling Britain and its assets to Wall Street's financial elites. Part of a strategy by Germany, aiming to attack the less combat-experienced Americans, at least in German minds, and create contempt between the British and Americans. But by January, the Germans had pulled back from the Ardennes forests in the west, where Allied forces were poising to cross the German border. In the east, Soviet tanks were 40 miles from Berlin, spurring Germans into a mad panic to defend the capital. All available men, including teens and pensioners, were called up to serve in the Volkssturm. Comparable to the Home Guard in the UK, the difference being the Volkssturm was now going to actually have to serve in defence of its country. As a broadcaster, Joyce was not called up, but his mood grew even darker and he grew more exhausted. This is reflected in the quality of his output and the tone as the war reached its final phases. Joyce began ad-libbing far less, partly due to a lack of spirit and motivation, but also the fact his drinking had begun to reach ridiculous levels. Joyce would deny the presence of Soviet artillery within striking range of Berlin, despite people being able to hear it, and denying that things were going badly, despite the increasing barricades and tank traps. Joyce himself was suffering physically from a lack of nutrition from his diet, and pain within his knees that would make it a struggle to walk long distances. He was often seen shambling round Berlin, watching air raids from rooftops. He became rueful about the situation, commenting Berlin would fall and was unable to be saved. As Soviet troops advanced, many Germans heard of the looting, physical and sexual violence carried out by Soviet troops, and Joyce's ire would fall upon the mid-level German officials, the supposed sycophants and yes-men who surrounded Adolf Hitler. He considered some of these people grifters and opportunists, that they used their power, their influence and their connections for monetary profit. It was this, amongst other reasons, that Joyce said later he was justified in not becoming an official member of the Nazi party. Joyce became steadily more fatalistic in his outlook, talking with employees at the Rundfunkhaus as to how he would die. His colleagues would argue for assassination or death in an air raid, but Joyce stuck to his teacher's prediction all those years ago, saying he would go out at the end of a hangman's rope. As with most people in fatalistic situations, Joyce said that he felt no fear, even at the end of everything. Occasionally, he would burst into uncontrollable fits of hysterical laughter. This once got him and Margaret in a lot of trouble in an air raid shelter. Margaret was with him, along with Margaret's male lover. The air raid warden said Joyce's laughing and singing was upsetting the other patrons. Joyce told him, in those familiar with the NATO alphabet, to foxtrot Oscar. A fight broke out. Soon, however, 
the radio staff of Berlin were told they were relocating to Uppen, a town in the area around Oldenburg, close to the Dutch border. Despite being somewhat dismayed he was not going to die in some kind of blaze of glory in Berlin, Joyce went with the rest of the radio team, whose facilities were now too damaged to repair or operate from. Margaret had wanted to leave far earlier than this, and William had offered to let her leave, but angrily refused to leave himself, claiming soldiers did not leave their posts. Nonetheless, when the radio staff evacuated, Joyce followed. On April 30th, 1945, the same day that Hitler ended his life in a bunker below Berlin, William Joyce sat in front of his microphone to broadcast for the last time. The show features a clearly inebriated, slurring Joyce, blaming the entire conflict on Danzig, the German name for the modern Polish city of Gdansk, and the fact that Germany had to cede this city to the Poles after World War I. He predicts a world where, without Germany to check their advances, the Soviet Union would expand its influence and communism would spread freely throughout the West, as liberal democracies were too weak to confront the communists. Signing off with a final Heil Hitler, Joyce left the studios and headed with Margaret to Flensburg, travelling under the papers of Wilhelm Hansen, a German born in Dublin, an ID that was forged by his German paymasters. Joyce's broadcast station was occupied on May the 1st, and on May the 4th, British journalist Winford Vaughan Thomas broadcast using Joyce's studio, announcing the end to Views of the News, the show of William Joyce, he remarked the broadcaster was on vacation, but that that vacation would be a relatively short one if the British Second Army had anything to do with it. Driven in an SS staff car through the night, the Joyces arrived in Flensburg soon after William's final broadcast. Flensburg was an important destination for many in the failing regime. By May the 7th, 1945, the Allies had accepted the surrender of Admiral Karl Dönitz, the new president of Germany. Dönitz had based himself in Flensburg to administer what territory of Germany and its conquests had not already been taken by the Allies. Joyce would wander around and become more sociable within Flensburg, leaving his house and even approaching Allied soldiers in the street, striking up conversation. It would be Joyce's way of flirting with danger, a way of seeing if any of the soldiers recognised him by his voice. None of them did, until May the 28th, 1945, when William made a trip to collect firewood. Encountering a group of British soldiers in the woods, he spoke to them in French. He remarked that there was some firewood they could have, and he would help them load the wood into their vehicle. One of the soldiers, name of Geoffrey Perry, was a German-Jewish refugee who fought for Britain. He was born horse Pinchua, but he challenged this helpful man, believing he was in fact William Joyce. Upon hearing this, Joyce shot for his pocket, and Perry, believing the man was reaching for a weapon, drew his gun and shot him in the backside. Still alive, Joyce took this, with his usual dark sense of humour, remarking that the British must have been fearing he would suicide on capture. He merely asked the troops if they could possibly tell his wife of their circumstances, but he needn't have worried, as Margaret was soon picked up and taken into British custody. Margaret had been taken to Lüneburg Camp, the headquarters of the 2nd British Army, and William was taken to Lüneburg Hospital to treat the four bullet wounds in his rear. Both were subjected to a degree of victor's justice and mocking. William had a sign marked traitor put round his neck, with photographs of him looking grim, with a sunken face given that the British had taken his false teeth. They feared that there were concealed cyanide capsules hidden in them. Soldiers taunted him with impressions of his accent, saying, Germany calling, 
Joyce responded that supposedly civilised nations would not use wounded prisoners for voyeuristic entertainments. Margaret Joyce was held in the cell Heinrich Himmler had been held in shortly before he took cyanide as he was being searched. She told the men who'd come to see a traitoress, come in, gentlemen, have a good gawp. She denied any knowledge of the concentration camps the men had liberated, such as Bergen-Belsen. A major and an army chaplain visited her. The chaplain asked if and when she'd married William. Finding his questioning rude, Margaret said she wouldn't answer them and requested the major fetch her a glass of water. The British major responded by sending a soldier to go and get it and demanding it be laced with typhus like the inmates of the camp had had to drink. Margaret corrected the major that the name was actually typhoid, to which the man exploded, telling her he should knock her teeth out for addressing him in that way. Margaret, in her usual show of defiance, told the major he could hate her, but he would be polite in doing so. She would only cry when they had left her alone, and that the only man there was the guard who'd been placed to watch her. In Britain, the public would see a Pathé newsreel of William Joyce emerging from a car and strolling around a dirt track under guard. Paraded for the news media, Joyce would eventually be transported back to England to face trial at the Old Bailey. When William Joyce stood in a dock, he was charged with three counts of high treason, namely broadcasting German propaganda, aiming to become naturalised as a German citizen, and then betraying his oath of allegiance to the king by working with the nation's enemies at war. Joyce pleaded not guilty to the charges, and his defence was a strong one, namely that he'd never actually been British, so it was impossible to have committed treason against Britain. The fact that he was born in America, raised in the Republic of Ireland, it was argued, made him ineligible for British citizenship, and therefore he owed no sense of loyalty or binding oath to the British government and the king. But the prosecuting attorney general, Sir Hartley Shawcross, had a response to this, namely that Joyce had committed deception to obtain a British passport. This deception was that he'd written in his paperwork he was born in Galway when Ireland was still a part of the UK, so therefore he would qualify as a British citizen. Legally speaking, Joyce may not have actually been British, but that as the holder of a British passport, this would confer upon him the rights, and more importantly for this case, the responsibilities of a British citizen. Given that he was under protection of Britain at the time, his work with Germany started, it could therefore be argued that William Joyce had in fact committed treason against the British state. This argument won the day in court, and William Joyce was found guilty of high treason on the third count and sentenced to death by hanging. This sentence itself is not without controversy, given the legal argument used. The historian A.J.P. Taylor argued that the crime Joyce carried out was technically falsification of documents to obtain a British passport, a crime at the time that was associated with a fine of £2 and not execution. Joyce would be moved to Brixton Prison while appeals of his case were heard. William wrote letters from Brixton Prison to Margaret. He signed them Brixton Bill. In part, he apologised to Margaret for the pain and suffering he caused her during their marriage and their time in Berlin. William wrote, My beloved, do, I beg, forgive me for having spoilt your life. You know that it was fated to happen. That is my excuse. As apologies go, I think it's a four out of ten. It said Joyce actually grew to enjoy his time in prison. He commented favourably on the food and on the order and the discipline of the prison regime. One guard commented on how wonderful Joyce was. He was always smiling, courteous, he never caused trouble and he'd apologise for any issues. The same could not be said for his fellow inmates, however, who would shout mocking remarks at him as he exercised in the yard alone. The Court of Appeal denied Joyce's appeal unanimously, so his lawyers appealed to the final court of the land 
the House of Lords, now referred to as the UK Supreme Court in our time. In December 1945, the House of Lords brought their verdict in. One judge, Lord Porter, ruled he would have allowed appeal on grounds of renewing a passport, not constituting a renewal of vows. The other four upheld the sentence. There was no turnaround. William Joyce was going to die. William Joyce's sentence was carried out on Thursday, January 3rd, 1946. One of his last acts was to give a letter to his brother Quentin, also held prisoner for fascist sympathies. In this letter he wrote, In death, as in life, I defy the Jews who caused this last war, and I defy again the power of darkness which they represent. I warn the British people against the aggressive imperialism of the Soviet Union. May Britain be great once again, and in the honour of the greatest danger of the West, may the standard of the Hakenkreuz be raised from the dust, crowned with the historic ideals, Ich hach doch gesicht. You have conquered nonetheless. I am proud to die for my ideals, and I am sorry for the sons of Britain who have died without knowing why. To his wife Margaret, he wrote another letter signing off with, I salute you, Freya, as your lover forever, followed by three Sieg Heils, and a final sentence in German. Beim letzten Appel, Volkstermann, der Battalion Wilhelm Platz. At the final call, a Volkstermann of Berlin's Wilhelm Platz Battalion. A crowd of around 300 gathered outside the site of execution, Wandsworth Prison, many of whom were there to ensure justice was carried out. Joyce was marched to the gallows, where he met Albert Pierpoint, executioner. At 9am precisely, the sentence was carried out as Pierpoint always aimed to do. Professionally, quickly, and with a virtually instantaneous death. It was said that a small group of fascists, hiding behind a bush to avoid confrontation, raised their arms in a Nazi salute to commemorate their man in Wandsworth. The only macabre detail came from the press was that the impact of dropping from a rope had caused Joyce's facial scar to split, but it was quickly repaired before a coroner's inquest. His body was buried in an unmarked grave on the grounds of Wandsworth Prison, like any other condemned criminal only eventually being exhumed following a campaign by his daughter to have it reburied in his childhood home of Galway in the Republic of Ireland. In concluding this episode, it's important to consider the actions of William Joyce, as well as the wider context in which he found himself. William Joyce was a true fascist. He ardently believed in the cause. He felt Hitler was the best thing for the world at this point, especially compared to communism. Then he went to Germany itself, and he joined their propaganda efforts directed specifically at his homeland of Britain. Joyce never fought directly against the British. He never killed any British people himself, but it was his voice that sneeringly celebrated Luftwaffe bombing raids that killed British people. Timing was a factor, given that he was caught within weeks of the end of the Second World War. I say this as if you put yourself in the position of a British civilian, who's just survived the most brutal conflict in human history to date, exposing some of the worst atrocities we've ever known. Even the most moral and pacifist among us will probably declare that justice be done. The leading Nazis were executed at Nuremberg. Given that his voice was the one British people heard supporting Germany, it would be upon Joyce the hammer of retribution fell. Personally, I feel Joyce deserved punishment for supporting an enemy force of Britain, though I'm not sure I would have gone for death. Nonetheless, I understand the strength of emotion that would have led to it. But there's others who weren't given anywhere near that sentence. Donald Grant, a man known as Scotland's Lord Haw Haw, was a broadcaster for the Rundfunk House at Radio Caledonia, 
which was based on trying to split Scottish nationalists away from the British war cause. When he eventually faced treason trial, he was charged with performance of an act to assist the enemy and was given six months in prison. Admittedly, he wasn't as high profile as Joyce. He didn't broadcast for anywhere near as long. But Grant had waited until October 1946 to surrender to the authorities. And by this time, people had seen justice done at Nuremberg. People wanted to move to rebuilding the nations of Europe. Joyce was in the eye of the storm. He was one of the principal English cheerleaders for the Nazi regime. Whether the strength of his sentence was fair, it's easy to understand why people wanted to get revenge on one of the most public and ardent British collaborators. William Joyce was a man of contradictions, a Nazi-loving fascist who started life as a British loyalist, a man who believed in rigid discipline, who lived a chaotic life of drinking, a man who bemoaned the degeneracy of society in general, and yet treated his wife absolutely disgustingly, a man who rejoiced in Nazi dominion of Europe, but for whom Britain always kept a place in his heart, a man who never fired a shot in anger, and yet became the public English-speaking face of one of the most notorious regimes the world has ever seen. In our next episode, I'm going to go to the other side of the political spectrum, to a man who was arrested for treason against the Soviet Union, a man who, in his own way, was a true believer, a true communist, a man who believed in the liberty that communism, Lenin and Marx could bring. In our next episode, we will talk about the mutiny of Valery Mikhailovich Sablin. <laughs>